This is an AMI podcast. Good morning. It's Friday, August the 12th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-audio and AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go! Coming up on the show today, we have our weekly news panel, but it's a special edition. It's just myself and Joita Gupta today going one-on-one. Joita will run circles around me with thoughtfulness and intelligence, and I'll just simply try to hold my own. Today, we discuss the use of spyware by law enforcement agencies in Canada, and we consider some solutions for continuing travel delays and cancellations and luggage issues at airports. And we'll contemplate the roles and responsibilities of crowdfunding campaigns and platforms like GoFundMe. In the second hour of the show, entertainment critic Michael McNeely previews the upcoming film The Whale, starring Brendan Fraser. And we wrap up the show and wrap up the week when we catch up with Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access. She'll share this year's shortlist for the Stephen Leacock Metal. But let's begin the show with our top story of the day. It's coming from the business world. Telecom giants Rogers and Shaw have signed a definitive agreement that will see Montreal-based telecom company Quebecor acquire wireless carrier Freedom Mobile for $2.85 billion. Rogers will sell the Shaw-owned Freedom to Quebecor's Videotron in a deal it hopes will appease the concerns of federal regulators about its proposed takeover of Shaw. The the definitive deal was supposed to be reached on July the 15th, but faced scrutiny from regulators and other telecom companies as negotiations continued. Let's head over to British Columbia, where a series of thunderstorms have ignited several new wildfires in British Columbia's southern and interior regions. That includes the area near the fires around Penticton. BC Wildfire Service Carly DeRosier discusses some of the climate conditions impacting the fires. July and August is when we see the most lightning, so certainly not unusual, and and we have not had nearly as much lightning as we did last year. It was an exceptional year for for lightning, but um, we do see these events, especially with the subtropical moisture. This is more common to produce kind of these larger uh, lightning events. Over to Manitoba, where that provincial government has announced a few million dollars for projects aimed at reducing homelessness. Part of the money will go to help a -a 24-hour-a-day warming centre in Winnipeg continue operations. Other projects include new social housing units and transitional housing for women who escape gender-based violence. Justice Minister Kelvin Gartson says the aim is to move people into safer housing. We are ensuring that People can have access to assistance and move from the streets into community-based supports and resources that they need. The government is not saying whether its strategy will include a safe consumption site. That is something the city of Winnipeg has asked for. A union representing Ontario's education workers is planning to talk about organizing strike votes at a meeting later this month. The Canadian Union of Public Employees sent a memo to members this week about an August 22nd meeting, and the agenda includes talk of organizing strike votes. Education Minister Stephen Lecce says bargaining is still in the very early stages. The government has not even provided our first substantive proposal to CUPE. They know it's coming on Monday. We've been doing interest-based negotiations to date, conceptual interest-based, and we're actually tabling the first offer on Monday. CUPE represents 55,000 workers, including early childhood educators, school administration workers, bus drivers, and custodians. 
Former U.S. Well, let's go south of the border. Former U.S. President Donald Trump has joined the Justice Department in asking a court to unseal the warrant used in Monday's search of his Florida residence. Jennifer King has the latest. Donald Trump writes, release the documents now in messages posted on his Truth Social platform. That came after Attorney General Merrick Garland held a news conference yesterday to say the Justice Department has filed a motion asking a court to unseal the federal warrant and property receipt from the FBI's search of the former president's Florida estate. That's unusual. Such documents usually stay sealed during a pending investigation. In light of the former president's public confirmation of the search, the surrounding circumstances, and the substantial public interest in this matter. Garland says he personally approved seeking the warrant. It's unclear when and if it might be unsealed. Jennifer King, Washington. While we're talking about the former president, the Trump Organization's chief financial officer is due in New York City this morning in a court today in a case about tax fraud. Aaron Katursky has that story. Alan Weisselberg, for decades, the chief financial officer of former President Trump's namesake business, is charged with compensating employees off the books in order to pay less in taxes. Weisselberg has pleaded not guilty. He could learn his trial date. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office said Weisselberg avoided taxes on nearly $2 million in income because the company paid his rent for his car and private school tuition for his grandchildren. Trump has not been charged, but Weisselberg's court hearing is a capstone on an extraordinary week that began with an FBI search of Trump's Florida home. Aaron Katursky, ABC News, New York. Another American story to share with you. An armed man tried to force his way into an FBI office in Cincinnati. Tim McGuire has more on that. A law enforcement source says 42-year-old Ricky Schiffer was the man dressed in body armor who tried to get into the Cincinnati FBI office on Thursday. He was later killed by police in a shootout. The source says Schiffer is believed to have been in Washington in the days leading up to the January 6th attack on the Capitol and may have been there during the attack. Federal investigators are also looking into whether Schiffer had ties to far-right extremist groups, including the Proud Boys. There have been growing online threats against the FBI and Justice Department since the search of former President Donald Trump's South Florida estate. I'm Tim McGuire. And one more story to share with you. Cruise ships are returning to New Zealand for the first time since the pandemic started. Charles de Ledesma sails in with the details. Indigenous Māori perform a welcoming ceremony as the Carnival Australia's Pacific Explorer cruise ship docks in Auckland with around 2,000 passengers and crew. New Zealand had closed its borders in early 2020 as it sought at first to eliminate COVID-19 entirely and then later to control its spread. Although the country reopened to most tourists arriving by plane in May, it wasn't until two weeks ago that it lifted all remaining restrictions including those on maritime arrivals. I'm Charles de Ledesma. So one more thing to get to before we start in with the daily polls. We are a national show. We broadcast from coast to coast to coast up here in Canada, but we are a show that's based in Toronto. So when something happens in Toronto that is significantly disruptive, it disrupts the show. So let's bring in Grace Scofield, our audio technical producer. Grace, there was a big blackout in downtown Toronto yesterday, and you bore the brunt of it. I did. As soon as I left after the show to go home, work the rest of the afternoon from home, I got home and there was no power. Um, Really convenient timing. 
for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a little sarcasm there. Teensy felt, bit of sarcasm. Felt really bad, but it was it was okay. You know, we made it through. And uh, then there continued to be no power. I live in a condo. I live in a den. I have no windows. So I was just in the dark all afternoon, which was great. And no air conditioning, no water, nothing for me. Now, oh this gosh. got worse for basically everybody else. Hospitals had no power. I believe that sick kids actually had to shut down some services for a few hours. Mm -hmm. I know some hospitals were calling code grays. They were not able to serve people as they usually would. Um, this power outage was like south of Carlton between the DVP and University Avenue. So That's it was a huge swath massive. of downtown. The entire downtown core. There was over 10,000 people without power. And I happened to be one of them. So I stuck around my apartment until the later evening. And then I took off to uh, the suburbs to go stay with somebody for the night because I had no water. I had no air conditioning. My apartment got up to like 29 degrees. Oh, my gosh. It was really warm. I was fortunate because I had somewhere else I could go. Um, so I was really lucky in this scenario, but I know that some other people were not that lucky. There was something you shared with me, by the way, living up here in North York, I, uh, I sometimes miss some of the downtown chatter and I didn't get any news alerts on this yesterday. So I was totally in the dark until I heard about this, uh, maybe late last night or early this morning about this uh, power outage. Uh, you'd mentioned to me that Toronto Police Service was telling pedestrians, stay home. The, the roads are for the cars now, which uh, seems kind of baffling to me. Yeah, so a lot of traffic lights were out. Uh, there was a ton of traffic congestion. Streetcars were delayed because they just couldn't get right. through. Right, yeah, absolutely. And um, they just, they didn't, they weren't able to move. And so uh, Toronto Police Services said to pedestrians, maybe stay home for a while uh, because streets were dangerous. Uh, cars weren't treating stoplights as four-way stops as they should when the power mm -hmm, goes out. Mm -hmm. That seems second nature to me, but apparently to some people, it's not that clear. And so there was a lot of danger to pedestrians. Uh, apparently a few blocks from where one of my friends lives, somebody was hit. Oh my gosh. And so there was, there was a lot of like just chaos happening in the downtown core. Kind of weirdly enough, Young and Dundas went dark. All of their... Um, advertising oh, screens were so, down so for once young and dundas would actually be a pleasant place to be yeah 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 <laughs> that's true <laughs> but yeah so it was it was pretty chaotic and there was so many people were affected by this yeah. obviously over ten thousand. and then i had friends who commute in downtown to work and they just got to go home right there's all kinds of other cascading effects yeah. beyond the ten thousand residents who are yeah. there there's all kinds of other people as that's where a huge chunk of the population makes its way to on any given day grace well i'm glad that you're safe and sound glad you. you got, got <laughs> glad you got to the burb safely and glad you got in this morning safely <laughs> thank you for sharing that experience i think of it's course. i think it's a useful perspective and i think especially when we start talking about the uh, traffic light situation and the pedestrian situation that's something that can connect so many of our viewers and listeners mm -hmm. at home home who have disabilities who can't drive and, being, and simply being told, no, no, you just stay in your 29 degree apartment while uh, people don't respect four-way stops. Doesn't yep. seem like really sound policy. Not uh, great. <laughs> not great policy. Grace, thank you for this. I'm going to come back to you in a second for the daily polls, which we'll get to right now at AMI Audio on Twitter, Accessible Media Inc. On Facebook, yesterday we asked you, over the last six months, new debit and credit sales terminals have been rolling out across the country. Are you finding them hard to navigate? 33% of you are with me and said, Yes. 11% of you apparently are super technologically savvy and said no. And 56% of you were like, what are you talking about, Dave? I haven't noticed new terminals yet. So I suppose uh, that's a blissful existence that 56% of you get to live in. Today's daily poll at AMI Audio on Twitter, Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Do you own slash use wearable smart technology, i.e. watches, rings, glasses, etc.? And if so, 
Tell us about your experience in the comments at AMI-audio on Twitter or Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Grace, you were messing around with wearables at all? The watches, the glasses, the rings, etc.? I used to, when I got my first cell phone, I was about 14. I think my dad for Christmas bought me a wearable smartwatch. Nice. And so it tracked my steps. I could upload pictures of my brother's cats onto it as little <laughs> wallpaper. And it was awesome. I loved it so much. I haven't owned one since. Um, I don't really use it. I do track my steps on my phone. Hmm. My boyfriend and I have hmm. a competition every day. I'm oh. like, how many steps did you do? Nice. And he always wins. He beats me okay. all the time. <laughs> but yeah, I try. Um, so I do really like wearable tech. I think that it's really useful. And anytime I have used it, I've had really great experiences with it. Yeah, I've contempl- I, I don't have any. I've, I haven't used any. I've contemplated buying one of sort of the cheaper Android smartwatches to pair with my phone, mostly for fitness reasons. I just think it would be nice to be getting some more specific tracking on calories burned and steps and that kind of stuff. But overall, I'm not terribly interested. Every time I put one in my in my shopping cart, I kind of look at it and say, nah, that's $40 you can spend elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, I'm not too terribly worried about it. But I will say one of my friends who's really into fitness says, I don't like the watch. The watch doesn't work for me. He has one of these smart rings that he wears and it's super oh, unintrusive. Okay. Instead of his engagement ring, he just wears the smart ring and it tracks his, it tracks like his REM sleep, a lot of his sleep patterns, his breathing oh. patterns, his blood oxygen. It's really, really seems like quite the piece of technology. And it's not as safe as obtrusive as a watch. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm, I'm not, a, I'm just not a jewelry person. So I don't think I'd rock the ring either. But maybe if, uh, maybe if I get engaged one day, I'll be like, hey. Let's get me one of these one of these fancy rings. I feel like that's a fun way to do it rather than a watch because the watches can be bulky. So yeah. the ring is a good alternative. There can be a little. They can they can be a little bit much. Hey Grace, thank you for this. I know I've leaned on you quite a bit uh, in this first segment. I'm going to keep leaning on you for the rest of the show. So be ready. Big Friday with Grace here on the show. Let's say hello to Corinne Van Dusen. Hey Corinne, I know that you do enjoy yourself a bit of technology here and there. Where do you stand on the wearables? I had an Apple Watch for a long time and I loved it. Um, but once the pandemic hit and I stopped leaving my apartment, it was kind of depressing to have the watch just go like, you want to stand up? You think maybe? <laughs> You've walked I, to the garbage chute today. Yeah. <laughs> oh, great. You've gone downstairs. Congra- <laughs> Sarcastic thumbs up. <laughs> Congratulations. You've made it a block from your house today. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> Um, But when I was um, commuting to work and just being outside more before that, yes, the watch came in um, handy for steps. And like the the stand-up reminder is good if you're like not just sitting at home all day. If you're at work and you're sitting at a desk and then it says, hey, why don't you stand up for a minute? It's like, oh, yeah, I should do that. Uh, But I found when you're not doing – when you're out of your regular routine, it was more of a guilt like inducing things yeah, than anything yeah. else. But I was also um, very cognizant of it because it, it was um, quite easy to like just tap it mistakenly. So mm, if something popped mm. up, because like, you know, a tweet would pop up or an email and then, you know, why would you want to make, I was thought, why would you want to make a phone call from your watch just mm-hmm, for me? Mm-hmm. Other people love that feature. I did not. So a lot of the time I kept looking down to be like, okay, am I accidentally calling or emailing? Is our, you know, <laughs> is yeah. my tweet yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. You know, one slash question mark because it's just recording everything? <laughs> is, is, the, is the new butt dial a wrist dial? Is that the new yeah. thing? <laughs> I enjoyed that. I've heard good things about the the rings as well and the point that they are not as 
um, bulky, as Grace said. And just if you wear rings, it's just a natural thing that is just getting a little bit more info from you. And a lot of people have told me about um, the sleep tracking on the watch is not awesome Mm -hmm. because they'll have, you know, they'll say, well, I I was slept all night. I didn't get up. And the watch said I got up three times. So kind of thing. And it's off and on. But with the ring, as you said, I think that could be uh, better calibrated because it's not going anywhere. Like even if you turn over or move your hand, like the ring is going to be staying on more than the watch. Corinne, I've got a follow up for you and I'm going to ask Grace to follow up as well. Certainly a lot of the earbud and AirPod technology is getting a lot smarter in terms of in-ear headphones. Would you consider that wearable smart tech or does it need to get a little smarter before we start calling that wearable smart tech? My narrow view of wearable smart tech right now is something that records data, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. so like a watch, a ring or that if it just produces headphones are, are not smart tech to me. Like the AirPods. Yeah, I guess you could say that. Um, but like, like that there's some like there's something there because you can like make a phone mm-hmm. call using them, but you still need your phone as sort of the key driving point. Yes, yes. And I'm still incredibly weary of AirPods in my life because I listen to a lot of true crime. And not everyone enjoys that. So if I'm walking the dog, you might not want to hear about, you know. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair (laughs) enough. Uh, Corinne, thank you for this. We'll talk to you a little bit later in the show. Grace, before I come to you for weather, I do want to ask you that follow-up as well. As AirPods and earbud technology is getting smarter, do you think we can call that a wearable yet or are we not quite there? I don't really think it's a wearable, especially just the AirPods, because really their only function is to do like either music. listen to music like, or yeah. talk or talk to people yeah and you still have to use your phone to make those phone calls like you still have to be like hey what's her name do this for me oh thank you so, for not saying their name you're welcome um, <laughs> so yeah i don't really think it's wearable smart tech i just think it's um you know it's a little bit more advanced maybe it'll get there eventually but i think the same as corinne if it collects data then sure let's call yeah. it smart tech yeah i mean we spoke to mike agarbo on wednesday about some of these uh some of this research going on at the university of buffalo about detecting ear infections using airpods right or using ear- earbuds so there, there's something that's occurring but i also agree i don't think i don't think we're quite there yet but i can i would be open to the argument if we were sitting at a bar having some tequila i would be open to the argument if somebody wanted to make it and i would enjoy that argument grace <laughs> Thank you for this. Of course. At AMI Audio is where you find us on Twitter. Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. That's where you vote on the poll. And I really do want you to share your perspective and thoughts in the comments on this question as well in regards to your experiences with wearable smart technology. Let's go back to Grace Scofield. Grace has the National Weather Update. Thanks, Dave. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We're going to start off in St. John's, Newfoundland, where it's mainly cloudy with a 60% chance of showers or drizzle, with a high of 18 degrees. In Halifax, there are some showers ending early this morning, then a mix of sun and cloud into the afternoon with a high of 26 degrees. Over in Montreal, a mix of sun and cloud today with a high of 24 degrees. In Ottawa, it's sunny today with a high of 24 degrees. In Toronto, sunny for the day with a high of 26 degrees. In Thunder Bay, it's also sunny today with a high of 22 degrees. Over in Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's mainly cloudy today with a high of 26 degrees. In Saskatoon, it's sunny with a mix of sun and cloud late this afternoon with a 30% chance of showers and a risk of a thunderstorm late this afternoon as well with a high of 28 degrees. 
Today in Calgary, Alberta, a mix of sun and cloud with a 30% chance of showers early this morning and late this afternoon, with a risk of a thunderstorm late this afternoon as well, and there's a heat warning in effect with a high of 30 degrees. In Edmonton, Alberta, it's mainly sunny today with a high of 28 degrees. Up in Yellowknife, it's sunny with a high of 22 degrees. In Vancouver, BC, it's sunny today, becoming a mix of sun and cloud near noon with a high of 23 degrees. And in Victoria, BC, it's sunny this morning, becoming a mix of sun and cloud later this morning with a high of 23 degrees. And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Grace. Coming up next, we kick off the news panel, except it's a special edition this week. Just myself and Joita Gupta will take a look at the use of spyware by law enforcement agencies in Canada after there were some parliamentary hearings this week. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's a special edition of the Friday News Panel. Myself and Juita Gupta going solo today. Or not solo, I suppose we're going one-on-one. Tete-a-tete. Hey, good morning, Juita. How are you? <laughs> good morning, Dave. How's it going? Not too shabby. Hey, we were talking to Grace in the first segment about the uh, blackout in downtown Toronto yesterday. I know you're in that neck of the woods. How'd you hold up? You know what? I hadn't been to the office in about two and a half years except very rarely, but yesterday was a day that I ended up going into the office and working a full day. So I missed everything. Wow. Except that my husband uh, told me, uh, my husband had come down to the office with me. And at one point, my mother-in-law, who lives in the same building, called us in a panic and said, I don't have any power in my building, in my in my apartment. I don't know what's going on. So that's when we clued into the fact that something may not be quite right. So my husband went back um, to check on my mother-in-law. She's in her late 80s. And by the time he phoned me again, uh, about an hour and a half later, things seemed to have settled down. But I was listening to Grace, and it sounds like Grace had a very different experience. I think I'd have been really flustered if I had been in a building without uh, electricity, if I'd been cooped up in a small apartment like that, without heat or water. And I, I... Grace didn't mention this, but I would wonder about whether um, the elevators were working in her mm, building, because mm. that could be a huge issue for someone yeah. with a mobility impairment. You are, for all intents and purposes, stuck in your building. And really good points about the hospitals. Uh, but no, for myself, to be perfectly honest with you, I missed everything. And then I got the news alerts late in the evening because I was buried under a pile of work. Yeah. So <laughs> of all the of all the days to pick, to decide to you know, do the old uh, good old-fashioned work at my desk in the office thing, I suppose that you could say I picked a good day. The universe smiled upon you, Joita. Let's uh, <laughs> jump into our first topic here. A House of Commons committee has been examining the use of spyware by law enforcement agencies in Canada. The RCMP compared the use of digital spyware technology to using wiretaps, and a former senior intelligence officer with CSIS admitted that spyware has been used to monitor politicians. Privacy experts say police and government use of spyware needs to be tightly controlled and the technology should be outlawed for the general public. Roy Dybert from the University of Toronto Citizen Lab made several recommendations to 
the committee, including that the government hold public hearings about spyware, consult the public to create a legal framework around it, establish export controls on Canadian companies, and penalize firms that facilitate human rights abuse. I think it's this was going to be Michelle's topic. It's, it's obvious that privacy is a huge, huge concern and something that's always worth examining, especially when we get some expert testimony on the matter this week. Joita, how do you feel about some of the some of the revelations that came out this week? Any that stand out to you? Well, there was a lot that was uh, unsurprising, to be honest with you. Mm. I think the concerns mm. around privacy are quite pervasive. And you're right, we have, I think, on this panel and elsewhere as well, talked extensively about how imperiled our privacy is as private citizens. But I suppose you could muster a degree of surprise to think that politicians uh, were being surveilled. I don't think that is something that comes to mind. I think when a lot of people think about privacy violations, um, I don't know where your mind goes, but I often think about the encroachment that social media platforms mm-hmm. make into our mm-hmm. personal lives. That's kind of where my brain goes. So the politician thing is not unheard of, but it was certainly a point of surprise for me. But later on in that article, there's one expert, a former privacy commissioner, who says that in the years that he served as privacy commissioner, he had no idea that the police service was making use of spyware. And the fact that the police was getting away with doing this without informing the privacy commissioner at the time, my eyebrows shot right up. Mm. That was such a weird one. No, there's a lot that we can talk about there, but I think the sentiment, at least for me, Dave, is that we know privacy concerns are widespread. It's not just... Facebook and other social media companies, but also the state and the forms of surveillance that are taking place. And I think we have, in fact, as a country and as a as a people, really fallen asleep at the wheel when it comes to protecting our privacy. Yeah, I, I think we can accept and understand that in 2022, simply saying that wiretaps are the only form of surveillance that law enforcement can use would be very naive, right? We, we can understand mm-hmm. where using consumer spyware would at least benefit investigations. But as you mentioned, Joita, what's the process here? What's the transparency? We know that in the past, getting things like wiretap required warrants, required third parties, required going to judges. It couldn't necessarily be as willy-nilly as people wanted it, as, as maybe law enforcement would have liked it to be. And it seems like perhaps there's a loophole that they were able to get through on this front. So that's where we start talking about a process on surveillance technology. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I would, I would just simply say that we just need to apply some of the former standards we had on wiretaps in terms of getting those warrants and that process being transparent. That isn't to say that you get a notification if the government is, if the government or law enforcement is surveying you because that would sort of defeat the point of of surveillance. But I will say that there needs to be a a clear process that's very similar to how the wiretap process worked for decades and decades. Well, precisely. We don't have to start from scratch. We do have a process um, to establish when and who and why you might get a a phone tap, for example. And in order to get a warrant, you have to appear in front of a justice of the peace. And you have to be able to, the, the applicant, let's say it's a local police force, has to be able to reasonably prove that they have evidence to, su- to suggest that a crime is about to take place. Mm-hmm. Now, I want us to th- I maybe step back a little bit, Dave, and think about the context here. I think it might be helpful to think about 2016 and the U.S. elections and the uh, fear at the time that Russia had influenced that election. Uh, it's a f- it, it is something that the FBI went on to confirm about a year later. And I think that is probably why, when we think about the substance of these 
most recent hearings, why politicians are being targeted because there's a fear that uh, foreign actors or foreign governments may be unduly influencing these politicians. Mm -hmm. But again, I come back to this point about due process and transparency to quote, to, you know, just to pick up on what you're saying. So, you know, if there's a, a sense that a politician may be committing a crime, I'm thinking something like a kickback or fraud, then again, there needs to be a reasonable, um, uh, there needs to be a reasonable amount of evidence and not just a hunch to um, warrant the use of spyware. And then, of course, in the same vein, you don't just, I think, get the right to blanket surveillance of a person. Let's just talk about this. I think with a, a wiretap, one of the things you have to establish is when and how the communication is going to take place. So you would you know, have to say, we would like to you know, phone tap this person because we have a reasonable belief that they're going to be talking to somebody in the next 24 to 48 hours about this criminal matter. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm sure the conversations are more sophisticated than that, but just in the, in the, in the interest of making the yes. argument. Yeah, of course. So, so again, you know, so, so again, when we think about the use of spyware, we not just have to think about having a conversation and, and, and a process, but also putting limits on it. Yeah, so, scope. You know, you don't, scope is such you know, an, scope is, is such an important an side important of this. Thing. But if you'll allow me one other caveat, please, please. we're just talking about politicians here and we're talking about public figures. The other part of this that can be really disturbing is that anyone can download spyware. OK, it could be you. It could be me. You know, if you were not that you would or if anyone really wanted to spy on an ex-girlfriend that they had had a spat with or had a falling out with. The use of spyware as a way to track people has become a huge problem when we think about things like intimate partner violence. And I think that's the situation when we talk about the use of spyware to either look into or to surveil private citizens or, you know, when private individuals download spyware to try and, you know, perpetuate things like intimate partner violence. I think that's where we really need to crack down and say, no way, that's not OK, because they, these conversations are hugely Hugely nuanced. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I think the only place where I would come down really hard and say we've got to say flat out no surveillance whatsoever is in scenarios where private individuals can download um, software that allows them uh, to perpetuate or perpetrate things like intimate partner violence. Yeah, that was something that struck me during a couple of the committee meetings that really you don't even need to go to the dark web to download some of this stuff, that it's re it's readily con available for consumers if they want it. And that's and that's certainly a concern because even though we can, we can try to put in transparency and controls and due process to law enforcement agencies, any every any average human, if they can just get their hands on this and they're a nefarious actor, they can they can do a lot of damage with it. And you're right. There's a lot of ways in which it interpersonally can impact people. And Joita, let's use that as sort of the, the, the jumping off point into the concluding question here. One of the things that I say on the show a lot is that it really feels like privacy is something of a lost cause. I that isn't to say that I don't believe that privacy is is a is something we should strive towards, but I think oftentimes we as individuals at this point have willingly sold off or, or signed away some of our privacy for access to, to certain services, specifically in the online world. I'm not saying I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but mm -hmm. I'm saying that we have. But as you start thinking about privacy as a human right or a lost cause, I know you're gonna I know your answer is gonna be way more nuanced than that binary, but where do you start kind of contemplating that question? I want to applaud your pragmatism on this. I think uh, where I start the conversation is with 
the principled position that privacy is a human right. But with that said, I appreciate that you're bringing in a lot of nuance because a lot of us have traded in a good bit of our privacy for the convenience of using social media apps or other uh, applications on our phone. And, you know, um, we were just uh, earlier in the conversation when we were talking about wearable tech, we were talking about counting steps. Well, there's this application that's keeping track of how much you're walking, but it's also keeping track of where you're going. And so you're giving up a lot of your privacy in that fashion. But I think that the, the bottom line for me is that we perhaps should not be quite so cavalier about our privacy online. Um, the reason we are in the situation is not because of an accident. It's because cell phones are designed to be notoriously invasive. Social media platforms rely on being able to gather our personal data and sell that to advertisers. We are here because we have allowed ourselves to end up here. Mm. Um, you know, a few weeks ago, I was traveling in Europe and um, when I was using the internet in Europe, whichever website you went to, you, they, you had to give them your consent to advertise, uh, to, to collect your personal data. So every time I went on a website, there was a little thing that would pop up and say, do you consent to the use of your data? And then I think in the past, I've talked extensively about how much better I think they're doing in Europe in terms of things like the right to be forgotten. <laughs> in terms of everything. They're doing a good job in Europe. Well, certainly in terms of privacy, certainly in terms of privacy, I think they are leaps and bounds ahead of us when they're having the conversation about privacy. I think we have allowed a number of large actors, I'm going to talk just briefly about social media, to take up far too much space and to erode many of our privacy rights. When you get into things like the RCMP or CSIS or local police forces, having the right to surveil people without due process, that's a whole other can of worms. Because I think the one thing that doesn't get talked about in the article, Dave, and I was thinking about this last night, is the importance of privacy uh, and curtailing surveillance and how, how valuable those things become to our democracy. There are many examples of state surveillance where they've cracked down on protesters and dissent. And I think, and I would like to think that you would agree, that having a society where you can, you can have uh, dissenting opinions, where you can contradict the state, where you can, um, you can organize a protest without undue surveillance, is a really important pillar of our democracy, again, mm -hmm. with the caveat that in some interests, in some cases, you need to be able to provide some surveillance in the public interest. You, have, you know, if you have a, a terrorist group or a far-right group planning a violent action or something, I can understand situations or circumstances where an infringement of our privacy might be warranted. The key word for me, Dave, is circumstances and context. And really approaching this on a case-by-case -case basis is really important. And I will once again sort of echo the point about due process, because I think a lot of us don't realize how little process there actually is. We need a public conversation in Canada about our privacy. It is a long overdue conversation. And I really would like to see the government take some steps, not just talk about it, but to see some action to mm -hmm. bring about a public conversation about where we're at in terms of our privacy. It affects all of us. Yeah, those public consultation hearings would be a disaster, uh, but but they're de <laughs> they definitely would be important. I think it, it, would, draw, it would draw out, let's call it some uh, peculiar uh, individuals and some of their views, but it would be a very important conversation. But yeah, but Julia, but to the serious point you were making there, as we have these conversations in good faith and 
are willing to maybe offer some of these powers to law enforcement, that works under the assumption that rule of wa- rule of law and democracy are still strong institutions. But as we don't need to look that far, even just south of the border, there are some cracks showing in those institutions. And it wouldn't take much that if people have these powers and we lose some of that process, it could get ugly in a real hurry. So yeah, I think that's really well put. Juita, thank you for your thoughts on this one. Let's take ourselves a quick pause. And after the break, we'll consider a couple of solutions in regards to continuing travel delays and cancellations and luggage issues that are happening at airports. This is the Now News Panel on AMI. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Juita Gupta. Let's talk about our next issue. Travel delays and cancellations remain a pressing topic for folks trying to get from point A to point Z. Although some of the issues at airports have cooled, there are still lots of delays, cancellations, and lost luggage for travelers to deal with. A few stories came out this week, and I want to get your take on all of them. Joita, let's try to go quick on these because I want to give your topic about 10 minutes on the back end. So let's try to take about two minutes for each of these uh, proposed solutions. And let's start with boring bureaucracy. The House of Commons Transport Committee has voted to launch an investigation into travel delays. Joita, I think this is a fine idea, but I don't think it's actually really a solution to travel delays. And especially if this uh, report is done or this investigation is done, recommendations are made and none are followed through with, it seems a little bit pointless, but I do think it's at least a worthwhile endeavor to get some data. What do you think? Um, maybe, maybe not. I was actually going to come down and say it was pretty pointless. I think we know why the delays have taken place, and the delays have largely taken place because airports did not anticipate the spike in travel. They laid off a lot of their staff, and those people then went on to find other jobs, and now the airports are scrambling because they are woefully understaffed. I think the airports know what the problem is. Um, besides that, in a lot of instances, I know WestJet and Air Canada have cut back on the number of flights. Um, going that you know that they're actually flying as a way to address some of these capacity issues. So it really feels like one of those situations where um, the horse has left the barn and galloped away, and then you're wondering, did we leave the door open? Yeah, like, what happened? Yeah. It, it, it feels very performative, and it just kind of. And I, I am a big fan of public inquiries. I think I am, you know, rah rah, public inquiries, <laughs> yeah. bring it on. Um, and 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 you would be right to be skeptical of my enthusiasm for public in- inquiries as such, but honestly in this instance it just seems like they're doing something because they feel like they need to show that they're doing something what is the point of this what will actually be accomplished um i don't think very much will be accomplished because even if they make recommendations they'll sit on the shelf but honestly they know what the problem is and they should have just fixed it yeah especially in the context of this week the news coming out that the cta is backlogged with complaints and they're not actually enforcing the passenger bill of rights that supposedly is in effect right now so yeah what's what's the point of doing bureaucracy if the bureaucracy doesn't lead to action okay Juita, oh, one, le- quick thing, one quick thing though sorry i don't hope you don't mind the one thing i could see an inquiry about is around passenger bill of rights you're you glad uh, you mentioned it and just around the compensation i just want i think that if you did 
have to an inquiry, maybe just narrow it down and focus on just that yeah. one thing. Or looking at things yeah. like overbooking, right? Irresponsibility yep. of overbooking flights, these kinds of things, as opposed to the quantitative data, which we already know experientially and is already being collected by third parties anyway, right? Like you could like you don't need government bureaucracy to uh, get their own data. They can use some of this third party data if they believe it's if they believe it's reasonable. Okay, Juita, here's one that I think is kind of interesting. Regina's airport is adding some more international flights ahead of the winter season. I know this is kind of a leaping off point. I'm jumping to a different conclusion, but that's how Dave Brown Consulting works. Even though this news is about adding new flights at airports, it got me thinking, should we be using more of Canada's medium-sized airports for international flights as a way to perhaps funnel some flights out of Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal? Don't get me wrong, Juita, population density is a real thing. There's like, what, 10 million people in the GTA, give or take? So it does make sense to have flights rolling out of Pearson. But if, if we funnel some flights out of Toronto, Vancouver, and Montreal to other airports in Canada that can offer direct international flights, maybe that's going to ease some of the burden and ease some of the word that the the, the mass media is using, the chaos. Mm -hmm. Now, there are multiple airports in Canada that already support direct travel to the U.S. and direct travel to uh, Europe and other places internationally. So this does strike me as something that's manageable. So what do you think, Joita? Why couldn't we potentially funnel some people outside of Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver to other medium-sized international airports uh, in, in the country? Oh, there's no harm in it, Dave. I think it's not a bad idea at all. I like it um, with a few caveats. The first one is demand. As you said, popula- population density is a factor. And that doesn't just mean that there's a ton of people in Toronto, Vancouver, and Montreal who could take international flights. I think it goes beyond that. Um, if I were an airline carrier, I'd be asking myself, is there enough demand out of Regina for to, to, to undergo the expense of actually having a flight go there? when we already have flights going to maybe Toronto and Vancouver, for example, and mm-hmm. and Montreal. Mm-hmm. So that would be a big sort of caveat. And it's really not something that is uh, up to airports. That's really up to individual airline carriers. Um, but the other thing to keep in mind is, do these airports, the medium-sized airports, actually have the physical infrastructure to funnel that a higher amount of traffic? So, and and do they have the processes and the staff in place? Because you could end up with a situation where if this is implemented badly, you could end up funneling a whole bunch of people away from Pearson or from um, Montreal and from Vancouver, only to end up with delays and snags and all kinds of other problems in some of these smaller airports because they just didn't have a plan to get it right. One of the things I worry about, Dave, is the knee-jerk reaction. Right now, we're dealing with all these chaos in these airports. And I'm wondering if people are maybe a little bit too quick to grab at solutions, which will be interesting badly implemented. So mm-hmm. I would say slow and steady wins the race. I, I, I should point out here, I'm not talking about moving like thousands of flights a day. No, I'm talking about maybe just a couple. I will tell you my experience going through Ottawa, Calgary and Winnipeg in my life have all been very positive. And I was recently in the Halifax airport, not traveling internationally, but they do have an international component to that airport. And it looked like the lineups and situation wasn't too bad there. Now I know all it takes is adding a couple hundred people, a couple hundred passengers. And next thing you know, the situation can turn quite hairy, but I do think there could be something to this because we're already asking people to funnel into Toronto, Vancouver, and Montreal to get a lot of these direct flights. Mm -hmm. So maybe for once the Torontonians, Montrealers, and Vancouver rights have to have the experience of like, I've got to take a connecting flight to get somewhere. (laughs) Imagine the inconvenience of the city slickers. (laughs) 
Joita, one one more for you here. Uh, now, I, I shared my take on this earlier in the week, so I'll try to keep it quick. But an Australian airline is asking managers and executives to join baggage handling crews to deal with increased workloads and delays. Uh, Joita, as soon as I read this story, I thought to myself – Anybody who thinks this is a good idea has never worked anywhere. Managers and executives very rarely have any idea of what's going on on the ground. And having untrained people dealing with baggage really strikes me as a poor idea. But what do you think? (laughs) I I, I promised myself that I wouldn't laugh. I was like, okay, when this one comes up, just think depressing thoughts. (laughs) But (laughs) But this one is hilarious. It's honestly a gimmick. I don't think they're serious. Maybe they're trying to make a point about, I don't know what, staff shortages. I don't have enough context. But honestly, if you're an airline and you have enough executives to make a difference to baggage handling, you probably have too many people in your C-suite. You might want to send a couple of those people packing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's well put, Juita. Hey, Juita, thank you for uh, running around this topic for me real quick. Now we've got some nice time for your topic coming up after the break. Because coming up next, we'll talk about crowdfunding campaigns. We'll contemplate the roles and responsibilities of the platforms and the people organizing the campaigns. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI, a special edition with Dave Brown and Joita Gupta flying together. Just the two of us. No Michelle McQuig today. We have one more topic to discuss. A New Jersey man who admitted his role in a GoFundMe scam has been sentenced to five years in state prison. Mark D'Amico and two co-defendants tricked people into donating money to a homeless veteran in Philadelphia through the crowdfunding platform. They raised over $400,000. Now, that is just a teensy tiny sketch of the story. Joita, why did you want to tackle the story about crowdfunding campaigns? Actually, you know, it's my husband brought the story to my attention. And it's the kind of story that I think resonates with a lot of ordinary people because everyone has at some point donated by now to a GoFundMe campaign or they think they might want to. And the story has many layers. Um, there's so much we can talk about the different the different the different sentences for the couple that was the instigator of the fraud and they both got time in prison versus uh the homeless person who was a party to this fraud and he was sent uh for rehabilitation and so i'm a big believer that you should have non-carceral solutions for vulnerable people as much as possible so that was really important for me but Mm. i think it does open up a bigger question about what the role of platforms like gofundme is did they actually have a obligation to verify this because there's about 16,000 people dave who contributed to this campaign and thought they were doing the right thing or were acting from the from a, a place of generosity and they all got taken advantage of. Yeah, so let's talk about this. Let's talk about responsibility, especially of a platform like GoFundMe, because I do believe they should have to do a teensy bit, at least a teensy bit of verification or scratching. I know it would be quite difficult for them to do, but when we're talking about the opportunity for people to be scammed, the platform itself certainly has to bear some responsibility. I think we even saw that with some of the protests back in January and February, where platforms like this were potentially being used for nefarious reasons. Mm-hmm, exactly. And don't forget that GoFundMe gets a cut of the donation. Yeah, they sure do. Yeah, they absolutely so do. So that's, that is another reason why they need to be able to verify this. And I think when you're looking at campaigns that deal with vulnerable people, if you think about the United States, for example, where they often have GoFundMe campaigns for life 
you know, life-saving medical treatments. And what people really rely on are these heartwarming stories to try and raise money. That Yes, it goes without saying that these platforms have an obligation to verify. Uh, but I think you run into a bit of a problem as to there are so many of these campaigns on GoFundMe. I'm actually at a bit of a loss as to how they went legitimately go about verifying yeah, yeah. all of them. Maybe they could do like a spot inspection, like maybe you verify some of them. But certainly, I think it is an incontrovertible fact that these campaigns, are, that, that GoFundMe as, as a platform has some responsibility. But as to how they actually go about verifying the campaigns, it's beyond my pay grade. <laughs> I, I almost wonder if there's a threshold, Joita, right? Like when banks are looking into money laundering or suspicious oh, money movement, idea. they'll say, hey, there's a threshold here. So if somebody's raising a couple couple hundred bucks. Listen, even if that's for nefarious reasons, what's a couple hundred dollars? But when we're talking about hundreds of thousands, yeah, that's maybe when we need to start getting some extra radars going up. Now, Joita, just because I said they have a responsibility to verify doesn't mean that I don't believe in the merit of places like GoFundMe and crowd and crowdfunding campaigns vis-a-vis normal charities, because it only takes a couple of minutes on Charity Intelligence Canada's website to see how much overhead exists in the current charity industry where money is not getting to the root problem that they're trying to solve. A lot of it's going towards fundraisers and executives. So I actually do believe there is still a strong place for crowdfunding campaigns. There is. And that argument has been made many times. That's actually why people go to to donate on GoFundMe, just so they can avoid the overhead of going to a large charity. But I think there's a couple of things I'll say in favor of charities. One, um, a GoFundMe campaign, even if it raised, let's say, $400,000 for a homeless person, that does not necessarily deal with the problem on a systemic level. The hope is that when you contribute to a charity, um, you're actually contributing to solutions that mm. will impact the mm. problem on a systemic level. With that said, there is a long history of charitable giving around homelessness, around mental health and addiction treatment. And in both instances, when you look at the crowdfunding campaign or if you look at um, even the role of charities, I, I hate to say it, but I think in both of those inst- instances, we're really looking at Band-Aid solutions. Yes. You know, it's like food banks, Dave. Food banks were ne- or shelters, they were never meant to be permanent pr- uh, solutions to food insecurity or homelessness. And yet we're in this really problematic situation where so many people are struggling with not having enough to eat or putting a roof over their head. And so the question I will ask in response to your question is, where are our decision makers? At? Yeah, I, Juita, I agree with you completely. When we're talking about what I would call systemic or structural charities that are almost institutionalized at this point as being solutions for lack of funding and lack of resources for vulnerable people, that does strike me as a big problem on a couple of different counts. And I wanted a big rant about a major ice cream retailer yesterday and their uh, little special day where they were taking people's money and will eventually use it as a a tax write-off and then, you know, not contribute to the children's hospitals that they're purportedly uh, raising money for yesterday. So I'm not going to put myself in another situation like that today, but I will simply say that when we're relying on charities to solve social issues, this isn't the Rockefellers in the 1910s. We live in a much different political economic setup now where we are supposed to have government institutions that are dealing with this, not charitable institutions. Or crowdfunding campaigns. Or crowdfunding campaigns. Yeah, absolutely. It's really, these are not meant to be ways to address the gaps in our social safety net. Now, 
I will say if you if you know if there's a, a story. The other thing around this um, is just the equity argument. Often on crowdfunding campaigns, if it's you know I don't know blonde bombshell Barbie who's getting evicted from her apartment, she might do better than the black disabled person. So there's an equity argument there oh, as sure. well because these sure. these crowdfunding campaigns don't help everybody in quite the same way. And Joita, with, with about a minute and 30 seconds left here on the clock, here's where I come back to sort of like the, I guess you'd call it the basic dude take. Anytime you give money to anything, especially if it's something like a crowdfunding campaign or a charity, it is still incumbent upon you, the donator, to do a little bit of research, right? I mean, I, I don't want to like solely come out here and say that it's purely the responsibility of, 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 the, of the platform to stop me. I need to have a little bit of a scrutiny in where my money goes as well. Oh, for sure. No, that's not a do take. That's just common sense. I think that's a good idea. You know, check for the red flags. Like, and I think a lot of people don't actually know how to check for the red flags or know to distinguish credible information from information that's just out there. But that's a whole other conversation that we just don't have time <laughs> no, for. No, we sh we sure don't. Hey, Joita, I really appreciate you uh, going one on one with me today. Going tete a tete uh, with Michelle, feeling a little bit under the weather. It was a lot of fun. I always appreciate your intelligence and insight. Have an excellent weekend. In fact, Joita, we've got about thirty seconds here before I've got to say goodbye. Give me a quick snippet of what's coming up on the Pulse this weekend, because you guys are about to start a new series. Oh, that's right. I, I am so glad you mentioned that. So the Canadian Foundation for Physically Disabled Persons has a permanent exhibit, which is called the Canadian Disability Hall of Fame. And they've just inducted three amazing Canadians with disabilities to the Hall of Fame. And we'll be speaking to them over the next few weeks, starting with uh, Paralympian Josh Duak today uh well this weekend actually. yeah tomorrow 3 p.m eastern time saturday's 3 p.m eastern time on the pulse on ami audio and you can also download the podcast on your favorite podcasting platform juita have a wonderful weekend hopefully no power Thank outages you. in your life <laughs> thanks a lot that's juita gupta the host of the pulse on ami audio coming up after the break we get to the regional news update with corinne van dues and this is now with dave brown on ami Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-audio, AMI-tv, AMI.ca. Or maybe you're listening to the full show on demand on the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. If you're not listening to the whole show when you listen to the podcast, that's how you should be rolling. That's how you get all the good stuff. Some of the stuff gets cut out if you just listen to the individual segments. Full show is the way to go. I'm Dave Brown. It's Friday, August the 12th, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show. I get something stuck in my throat. And entertainment critic Michael McNeely previews the upcoming film, The Whale, starring Brendan Fraser. And we'll talk literature with Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access. She has the short list for the Stephen Leacock Medal. Always good talking literature with Karen McKay. Let's bring in Corinne Van Dusen for the regional news update. <music> Thanks, Dave. We're going to start in British Columbia, where an emergency department in BC's interior is closing again, three days after it returned to 24-hour operation following five nights of overnight closures. Interior Health says the department at Dr. Helmikin Memorial Hospital in Clearwater will be closed for the next eight nights between 6 p.m. and 7 a.m., with full-time service set to resume on the morning of August 19th. Closures due to limited staffing availability have become routine in Clearwater and other rural communities. With Arian Greer, vice president of the BC Nurses Union, recently saying staffing shortages and wait times are the worst she's ever seen. 
With the hospital emergency department closed in Clearwater, patients are being diverted to Royal Inland Hospital in Kamloops or 100 Mile House District General Hospital, both more than 100 kilometers away. Environment Canada has lifted heat warnings that covered inland sections of BC's north and central coast, leaving one ongoing warning for the Fraser Canyon. The weather agency says daytime highs near 35 degrees in the region should begin to cool this weekend. While thunderstorm warnings continue to cover the Nicola North and South Thompson, Sashwap and areas, as well as the much of the rest of the southern interior that were all subject to lower level thunderstorm watches. The city of Merritt posted a note on its Facebook page warning residents about flash flooding from a storm there. All mudslides after heavy rain closed a stretch of Highway 8 from Spence Bridges to Lytton with no detour available. Meanwhile, air quality advisories for wildlife wildfire smoke cover regions along BC's boundary with Alberta from the East Kootenays to the Peace. Moving to the prairies where it's deadline day to buy a $10 Alberta United Conservative membership to vote for the next party leader and premier. The party will then go through the memberships to confirm information and expects to have the final tally on how many have been sold in about two weeks or so. Seven candidates are on the ballot seeking to replace Premier Jason Kenney in the party's top job. The next key date in the race is the second debate, slated for August 30th in Edmonton. In Ontario, Toronto Hydro and Hydro One say power was restored last night to remaining customers after a large swath of the city's downtown core, including office buildings, a major mall and a university campus, was left without electricity. Hydro One says the outage was caused when a barge moving a crane in the upright position ran into high-voltage transmission lines in the Portland's area. A Toronto Hydro spokeswoman says the outage, which hit around 12.30 p.m., affected approximately 10,000 customers and power was restored to half of them by 6 p.m. It affected customers in the Financial District, Toronto Metropolitan University and the bustling Eaton Centre Mall. In Atlantic Canada, Nova Scotia's recently announced satellite internet rebate program is expanding to help more people get access to internet services faster. As of yesterday, the province says the program will accept applications from residents and business owners who are not expected to gain access to wired or wireless internet until after December 31st, 2023. The expansion is expected to help about 2,200 homes and businesses in addition to the estimated 3,700 originally announced. The $8.5 million program covers the one-time cost of installing satellite, satellite internet for eligible homes or businesses up to a maximum of $1,000. And those are your regional news headlines. Thank you very much, Corinne. You're wearing a bunch of hats for us in this segment of the show, so stay right there because you've also got the big business story of the day. Corinne, what I love about this one is this is a follow-up on a story that you brought us a couple of months ago. Yes, I was going to say what better way to end the week than talking about airports. I'm not going to use the chaos word. <laughs> Thank as we you. Discussed yesterday. Thank you. I Don't appreciate worry. it. <laughs> but turns out uh, Heathrow's plan to cap their passenger levels has worked for them. The passenger cap is apparently working at Britain's busiest airport as they capped the daily number of departing passengers at 100,000 until September 11th. And they asked airlines to stop selling tickets and cut flights. So Heathrow has been the frequent scene of a lot of busyness with security and technical glitches and the baggage system and huge piles of lost luggage and unclaimed luggage that you can, there's pictures and there's stories all over <laughs> that you can hear from about that. 
The airport has said it's hired 1,300 people and that the number of security screeners is at a pre-pandemic level. So that's allowing 88% of travelers to get through checkpoints within 20 minutes. The cap has cut down on last-minute flight cancellations and improved baggage delivery and on-time planes. Hey. Little good, a little bit of good news there, Corinne. I like you know. You know what I like about that as as good news. It, it's one that sort of stands to reason. There's logic here, right? That says we are going to have enough people to deal with capacity. We will limit the capacity and have enough people to deal with that capacity. And surprise, surprise, it worked. Yeah. Who'd have thought? Maybe uh, not getting executives down there. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit of common sense. A little bit of common sense. We're not going to sell 20% more plane tickets than we can actually fit into the airport or onto planes. And that's going to make things a little bit smoother and easier for folks. So, yeah, really, you know, it's it's common sense, but it's it's nice when common sense prevails. Uh, Corinne, let's uh, put this one, this segment, in the bag for the week. But you're here for one more bit in this segment, and that is the Sports Chats. Corinne, we're both big sports fans, and every now and then I find something can sneak up on us. My brain was very much in the World Junior Championships, as well as some of the tennis going on around Canada, as well as the NFL preseason, and even a little bit of CFL's been on my brain this week. You know what I totally missed until you reminded me of it this morning? This morning you reminded me of it. The Field of Dreams baseball game that took place last night. Yeah, you want to have a catch, Dave, as they say? (laughs) Way to quote the movie there. I like that one. Well done. Uh, I do have controversial takes on the movie, so we'll leave those to it. Oh, no, 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 we we can get to those. But but tell me about last night's game first, and then we can actually get to some controversial takes. It was the uh, second Field of Dreams game that has been played. It was the Chicago Cubs against the Cincinnati Reds. The Cubs beat the Reds 4-2. to two. It started with Hall of Famer Ken Griffey Jr. and his dad, Ken Griffey Sr., walking out from the cornfield onto the field. Oh. And Jr. looks at Sr. and says, hey, Dad, you want to have a catch? Oh, I love that. That's good. So that's, that's well done. That's well done. Yeah, it started off with a lot of uh, pollen in the air, as they would say. But you're in a cornfield, so <laughs> yeah, that's, there's, there's going to be there's going to be some pollen in a cornfield. Uh, Corinne, I know that last year the White Sox and the Yankees had this game, and I think you, myself, and Andy Frank, as well as Mike Ross, all reflected on it together around that game, and we all kind of liked it. We all thought that it was a really good idea. I think the fact that it snuck up on me this week may be an indication that much like the Winter Classic in the NHL, you have to be really careful about these gimmick games that even when they look good on TV, the interest can wane really quickly. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because I wasn't, I was just looking at the schedule for the Blue Jays and I thought, oh, they have a day off on Thursday. That's interesting. No baseball for me. Yeah. What pops up? Oh, the Field of Dream Games. But it was so, uh, so pushed, for lack of a better word, for the first one, right? They're going to get all the advertising out there, all the nostalgia. Kevin Costner walks out. and, you know, it, it was huge and it was so, I just remember the game being so long. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was a long like, game. It was yeah. like the Super Bowl with like the, you know, the pregame starts at 11 a.m. and the game starts at 7 p.m. kind of thing. <laughs> but it was interesting to see. And then, and that's when you ever, we learned a lot about like how they built the new field to the specs of Major League, but the old one was still there. And um, just the cinematography and the um, seeing the baseball players in the uniforms that were in the movie walk out of the corner. Yeah. Field yeah, was very powerful. And, you know, this year they had the old timey uniforms, as I like to say, uh, with the Cubs and the Reds. So you still had that. But um, you, the first game is always going to be the biggest, biggest game. 
And then this is kind of like a, yeah, we're doing this every year. Yeah, sort of thing. yeah. Last year it felt like maybe again because it was so unique, it was so peculiar. It was the first time there was a lot of attention around it. Whereas this week, a lot of those conversations and takes that were had, it, it's it's tough to have that same conversation again with the same zeal. I also think, with all due respect to the Cubs and the Reds, last year the Yankees and the Yankees and White Sox were playoff contenders, arguably even World Series contenders. So I think you need to be a little choosier with who you're putting on the field, much like with the NHL and the Winter Classic. Mm-hmm. You can't. You're, you're doing like Crosby and Ovechkin in some of the big ones, right? You're not doing. You're not doing. I can't even name you players on the Cubs and Reds right now. Like Kyle <laughs> Farmer versus. Uh, oh my gosh, I can't even name a Cub off the top of my head right now. Like that's <laughs> Brian. Like Brian Ortega versus Kyle Farmer doesn't quite have the same ring as say like Tim Anderson and Aaron Judge. So mm-hmm. I think that I think that they've got. To, if baseball wants to keep doing this, and by the way, they they absolutely should because it looks great on TV. You you need to make sure you're picking the right teams and maybe even what do you think about this Corinne saying we are not going to play any other games on the field of dreams day it'll be the only thing on the baseball calendar yeah that's what I thought they were going to do um, to tell you the truth and uh, turns out there were other games so yeah yeah <laughs> that, that didn't happen but it does seem that it needs to be more isolated in regards to the schedule and, you know, maybe like it, instead of like just have this a classic always Yankees White Sox kind of thing, you know, like or like y- y- just like picking two major teams. But it's hard to pick a team the year before yeah, that you think yeah. is going to do well. If you pick the Yankees, yeah, they're going to do well. Like they're going to be a drop, <laughs> yeah, right? So. Yeah, I agree. But that, but that's it. Like maybe you have to be thinking about a marquee team and a good team. Mm-hmm. And I suppose in theory that the Cubs are a marquee franchise. There, there's interest there. But even compared to, say, like, the Red Sox or the Yankees or even the Dodgers, like, you need to be thinking about having one of those teams as a fixture and then bringing in sort of that second team that might either be a traditional franchise or might be the good franchise. But I think when you're talking about, like, maybe a Giants-Dodgers game, like, that is going to draw attention just by its nature versus, Mm -hmm. say, a Cubs-Reds game. Uh, Corinne. Let me hear your controversial take on Field of Dreams because I know Mike Ross has said a million times on the show it's his favorite movie. I personally think it's a little bit overrated. I don't, I don't even know if it cracks my top five baseball movies. Uh, like even off the top of my head, I would tell you Bull Durham and A League of Their Own are way ahead of Field of Dreams on my list. But give me your Field of Dreams controversial take. Yeah, I guess it's not as controversial because it's the same as yours. <laughs> I it, it's a It's a movie that people like – Oh my gosh, it's 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 kind of boring. Not gonna lie, it's a little long, you know. Yeah, <laughs> Kevin Costner has made better baseball movies. Yeah, but th- I get that's it. it. Kevin Costner has made a better baseball movie. It's called Bull Durham. Yeah, <laughs> it's nostalgia. It's uh, you know, if you have a certain, re- I find if you have a certain relationship with your father, you're gonna have a different take yeah, yeah. on this game than other people. And I just, when it comes on, it's not something that I'm like, oh, I have to watch that. I can't believe it. And I was just like, yeah, well. You know, you can't give spoiler alerts for it now, but <laughs> this happens, this happens, this happens, you go home. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the cool uh, thing was at the uh, just at the game last night, uh, Ray Liotta passed away. Yes. And he played Shoeless Joe Jackson in Field of Dreams. So they had a uh, big video uh, feature tribute to Ray Liotta 
narrated by Kevin Costner. Oh, that's so nice. That's really nice. That, that was very nice. But no, and if you want to, <laughs> you want to make a baseball movie aficionado mad when they ask you your top three baseball movies, you say The Scout. Angels in the Outfield, and Sandlot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sandlot. I'd say Sandlot would make my top five as well, but I'm, I'm of the age, right? Like Sandlot came out yeah. when I was of the age enjoying those kinds of movies. Uh, Corinne, have, where do you stand on A League of Their Own? Have you ever seen it? Oh, yeah. I love A League of Their Own, for a- sure. Amazon um, Amazon and- just put out uh, a TV series uh, of, of a reboot of A League of Their Own. Uh, I'm not sure how I feel about that. And why not? I thought it was a great, the take they took on it, I thought was really good because you think it grabs you in with the league of their own because you know, the te- if you've seen the movie, you know, the teams and you know, some of the players, but mm-hmm. there's different characters in it. Um, you know, you, uh, they wrote a lot about it saying you can't go in thinking, okay, it's just going to be the movie in TV form. Like it's, it's the core, like women's baseball league yeah, yeah. and certain teams, but there, I, I think they've done a lot of good things with it. I think it's my natural resistance to reboot culture and rehashing intellectual property. But I did see that Nick Offerman's involved, the, the man who played uh, Ron Swanson on Parks and Rec and also had a great role in The Founder, uh, the movie about uh, the McDonald's family. Uh, so I, I maybe I'm going to hit play just because I'm a, I'm a Nick Offerman person and because I did love the movie and I do like the concept, especially as we're trying to... Uh, in a better way, platform women's sports and sometimes through fictional products. That's the way to do it. I know Glow did that for wrestling for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Corinne, give me give me your top line thought on the Blue Jays and the Guardians having a series this weekend. Did you ever imagine that a series in mid-August between the Blue Jays and Cleveland would have such significant playoff implications? No, not since... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> not, oh, since, gosh, not, since Al- not since Albert Bell and Kenny Lofton in the yeah. 1990s. Yeah. Not since uh, Major League made uh, the Cleveland Guardians a, <laughs> a, team, a relevant team again. Uh, I No, it's it's such a weird season in regards to everything. Is so, we've talked about this this week. Everything is so tight in each of the the leagues and... and um, um, uh, the wild card races. Thank you. <laughs> and it's so tight and it doesn't matter who you play for. Like, it just seems that there are those teams like that everyone's fighting for just like half a game and everything like that. So it's going to be interesting to see the guardians. Another thing about them coming is Mississauga native Josh Naylor comes with them. Nice. Mm -hmm. So he'll be there this weekend, which is fun. Uh, The Jays have had two days off ish. Um, so that is good. Yeah. And there are photos circulating of um, Bo Bichette and Santiago Espinal cheering on Bianca and Rescue. Oh, okay. All right. So they're <laughs> at the tennis, which I thought was fun. They're around some winning. So we like that for sure, through and mm-hmm. through. I just want to make a quick mention of Cleveland Guardians outfielder Stephen Kwan taking the league by storm this year. 24 oh, year yes. old. Great speed, good power, good contact hitter. These are the exciting young players. We always talk about the Jays' exciting young players. We always talk about the San Diego Padres in their young players. Stephen Kwan deserves a lot of love, and he's a big reason for why the Guardians are playing as well as they are. He bats leadoff for them, so you'll folks who are watching or listening to the game tonight are going to get a taste of Kwan nice and early. Uh, Corinne, we really appreciate all the hats that you wore today. I know we've got you for one more day on Monday, so enjoy your weekend, and we'll talk to you in a few days. Thank you. Sounds good. That's Corinne Van Dusen with the regional news update, the big business story of the day, and the sports chat. If you want the sports talk to continue today at 4 p.m. Eastern time, the neutral zone, we'll speak with Andy Frank, our friend, the manager of AMI Audio, with a special announcement regarding future programming of the neutral zone. Oh, man, Andy Frank holding secrets even from me.
They'll also discuss uh, some of the issues surrounding the World Junior Hockey Championships and Hockey Canada. You can find The Neutral Zone 4 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. You can find Grace Scofield at the AMI Weather Desk. Thanks, Dave. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We're going to start off in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, where there's a mix of sun and cloud this morning with a 40% chance of showers this afternoon and a high of 23 degrees. In Charlottetown, a mix of sun and cloud with 30% chance of showers early this morning and a high of 23 degrees. In St. John's, um, it's mainly cloudy today with a high of 24 degrees. Over in Quebec City, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and cloud this morning with a high of 22 degrees. In Toronto, it's sunny today with a high of 26 degrees. In Sault Ste. Marie, sunny today with a high of 24. Over in Brandon, Manitoba, it's cloudy with a 30% chance of showers early this morning, then a mix of sun and cloud with a high of 27 degrees. In Regina, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and cloud this afternoon, with a risk of a thunderstorm late this afternoon, and a high of 30 degrees. Over in Lethbridge, Alberta, it's mainly sunny, and there's a heat warning in effect, with a high of 33 degrees. In Red Deer, Alberta, it's mainly sunny, with a high of 27 degrees. Up in Whitehorse, a mix of sun and cloud today, with a high of 25 degrees. In Kelowna, BC, a mix of sun and cloud with 40% chance of showers this afternoon and a risk of a thunderstorm with a high of 34 degrees. And in Vancouver, BC, it's sunny today, becoming a mix of sun and cloud near noon with a high of 23 degrees. And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Grace. Coming up next, entertainment critic Michael McNeely will preview the film The Whale, which stars Brendan Fraser. But first, we've been talking about the Samsung phones that were unveiled this week. In today's Tech Trends, Jim Ryan looks at the Gen 5 Galaxy Watches. Bigger battery, faster charging. It's not perfect, but it is better than what you had with the four. Victoria's Song of The Verge says that while Samsung's fifth-gen smartwatches gain battery power, they lose the physical bezel controls they were known for. It was beloved by a lot of fans, and it was just very fun and intuitive to use. But it's kind of become a, a victim on the altar of sleek minimalism. The standard Galaxy Watch 5 starts at $279 and targets general consumers. The new $450 Pro model is aimed at lovers of the great outdoors. You saw Samsung really kind of tout its durability, its very long battery life, uh, and the fact that it has turn-by-turn navigation. With Tech Trends, I'm Jim Ryan, ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's a Friday edition of AMI at the Movies with entertainment critic Michael McNeely. Today, Michael's got a preview of The Whale, starring Brendan Fraser. The film is going to have its North American premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival this fall. It's TIFF season. Michael joins us now from Kingston. Hey, good morning, Michael. Great to chat with you once again. Good morning. How are you doing, Dave? I'm well. Very interested in talking about this movie. Let's start here. What is The Whale about? 
So the whale is the story of Brendan Fraser's Charlie, who happens to be a 600-pound man um, struggling with, of course, his weight and, in addition to his weight, also other issues that affect his life, including the passing of his boyfriend and the estrangement that he has with his teenage daughter. This film used fat suits and prosthetics on Brendan Fraser to make him look larger. In the past, we've seen the use of fat suits on actors, but more for comedic effect. In general, are fat suits a good idea or not? Where do you stand on them? I've been struggling with this question for the last week. I've been asking different people in my, in my circle what they think. And sometimes I've had to explain to them what a fat suit is. So I think ultimately I would prefer that they don't use them. But I don't really understand what other methods there are to make someone appear to be larger than they actually are. I just think that fat suits have this history of being offensive, being wooed. Um, and I'm just thinking about in terms of other people with disabilities or other kinds of disabilities. Do we, we don't, we don't do, we shouldn't be using CGI to represent those disabilities. Like for example, Dave, we're not going to use CGI to make you appear to be a person that uses a wheelchair. So I'm just trying to understand when we draw the line. What do you think, Dave? Yeah, I, I think you're right to identify that there is some complexity to this every time we're talking about representation. But one of the really important words that was used in the preamble we put there was for comedic effect. And that's the thing that we need to be stepping away from when we talk about sort of the Eddie Murphy nutty professor or, or the or the Mike Myers uh, fat uh, B word from the Austin Powers movies where that just being fat is the punchline. It's a joke. That's the thing we need to shift away from. I do understand where it's maybe used as a form of makeup or a tool in more serious movies or TV that are going to be exploring these issues with perhaps more sensitivity. Um, certainly as an overweight, arguably obese person myself, uh, I, I certainly have concerns in the way that occasionally these, these kinds of things are presented. So I do understand where the use of the fat suit comes into play because the other thing that I think we have to avoid is a lot of the dramatic body transformation that sometimes gets glorified in Hollywood. I'm thinking about Christian Bale, the amount of weight that he lost for the machinist and then the amount of muscle that he put on to play Batman. I think that's another problematic element of body type in Hollywood that we need to be careful about. So Michael, I, I know that maybe I, I didn't quite land right where you landed. I can see where they're useful for other purposes. No, it's true. And I do want to say one more thing. There is a difference between stage and film. It is important to remember that the whale started off as a play. I read the play. I do believe that they may have used fat suits or overweight actors in the play itself. It's not quite clear. But there's one thing that you can do in stage that you can't do in, in, in film, most of the time anyway. On stage, I could just wear a sign that says I'm 600 pounds. Or I could just tell the audience ahead of time that I am 600 pounds, and that's it. I don't, I don't need to do any, any major CGI or anything. I just need to trust that people can use their imagination. 
So it's one of those things that we can't quite do in film because when you when you do when you make a movie or when you're watching a movie, you actually want to see the thing itself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As you mentioned, Michael, the film is about a 600-pound man who has a compulsive eating disorder. How did you feel about that storyline when you first came across it? I was just not very impressed with it. I just assumed that maybe it would be the quite quite stereotypical story about someone who's overweight. Um, The story about, you know, how they're depressed, how they're isolated, how they're bullied, how they're having a hard time. And on top of that, there was the suicidal ideation, and you know, I've just um, I've lost a friend due to suicide quite recently. So I just uh, I was like, oh come on, can we just do something else? Can we can we just you know find something happy? But you know, it is what it is. It's probably going to be an Oscar-nominated movie because we all like these dramatic transformations in Hollywood. So it's just. It just comes with the territory, I guess. The film is also going to be making reference to the Mormon faith. What kind of role do you think that's going to play in this film? Well, I have read the play in preparation to this, so I do know the answer. I won't wound it for people, though. Um, I do I do like the Mormon aspect of this. I'm actually using my hands on the screen just to show a separation of lanes. If you can separate the overweight aspect... With the Mormon aspect, I do like the Mormon aspect. So what's happening there is, as I mentioned, Charlie is gay. He's had a, a boyfriend. His boyfriend is not there anymore. Um, and that has to do in part with the Mormon faith, in part of with the restrictions of the church that have been imposed on gay people over the last last many millennia. Um, so. And in, in to some extent, the, the loss of the boyfriend and mental health concerns can explain the weight gain. But it's just, you know, I, I prefer just to focus on something that I haven't seen before, and that is the Mormon storyline. And so um, in, in the play and in the film, a, um, a Mormon on a mission is going to visit Charlie and that that points out a lot of religious debate. So I did appreciate that aspect. This film is a big deal for one of its stars, Brendan Fraser. It marks something of a return. But what do you want to share about the stars of this film, Brendan Fraser, and perhaps the less lesser known Sadie Sink? Well, she's only lesser known because you haven't watched Stranger Things yet, Dave. That is correct. 100% correct. I have not watched Stranger Things. Yeah, so the rest of the world, including Kate Bush, <laughs> knows about Sadie's thing. Okay. The, the, so you just need to catch up on that bandwagon. But I have to say that Sadie's think is going to be doing some heavy lifting in this film. She has to be mean to Brendan Fraser, and she has to be mean in that way that I was talking about, the bullying and the taunting and the, the oppressive aspects. So it'll be interesting to see if Miss still like Sadie Sink afterwards, or if she's able to provide some humanity to what I thought was a really gross character. Um, Brendan Fraser, as we may know, had to take a break from some Hollywood productions for quite a few years, and he was sorely missed, but that was partly because he was um, sexually assaulted. And so he's been forthcoming about that assault, and now he's finally getting more recognition to his credit. So I'm hoping 
that even though this film does feature a fat suit, it's just the beginning of Brendan Fraser's uh, renaissance. As mentioned, this film is making its North American premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival at TIFF. You are going to be covering the festival this year, which I know makes you excited. Do you think you're going to be uh, catching this one at the festival or wait until it ends up in theatres? I think we've set our piece. I think uh, I will just watch. I'll keep an eye on it, but I won't necessarily view it at this time. I think I can, I can wait in the theaters. I think, I think it'll be interesting to see what the general population believes about this film, whether or not, whether or not we're still thinking about outdated ideas about weight and weight loss, or if, if we're coming with something new. So I think I, I, I read the play. I'm quite satisfied with my knowledge right now. And more broadly, when it comes to TIFF, what are you most looking forward to? So I try and drag, try and drag out the surprise. Um, excuse me. I think I would be very interested in um, Wolsey. Wolsey is a film that is going to take place in Quebec, probably Montreal, if I'm not mistaken. And it's the story of an indigenous woman who finds herself living on the streets or living close to the streets in some way, um, and she's taken in by a found family. So I'm really interested to see, you know, more information about poverty in Quebec, more information about um, the treatment of Indigenous people in Canada, as well as to see some of our fresh and brightest actors working on this film. That's a good one to flag, Michael. Thank you for highlighting that. And we look forward to a continuing coverage of the festival as we get closer. But for now, we wish you a good weekend, sir. We'll talk to you next week. Yes, for sure. You take care now. That is Michael McNeely, our entertainment critic, offering up a preview of The Whale, starring Brendan Fraser. Coming up after the break, we'll say hello once again to Grace Scofield and Nisreen Abdelmajid. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's welcome Grace Scofield back into the show with the entertainment report. Grace, because I mismanaged the clock so poorly yesterday, we didn't get to this story. But uh, people on stage are saying, hey, don't throw stuff at me. Pretty much. And we're talking about Lady Gaga for the most part. Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga. She made headlines a few times in the past couple of weeks, actually, because the first time a fan threw something on stage and it almost like bounced off of the air in front of her. So people were making fun and saying that she must have a, like a force field, <laughs> like a shield situation going on. So it was a little bit of a fun topic. But then later last week, she was actually hit in the head by an object thrown oh, by man. a fan. They couldn't tell what the object was in the video. But I don't like I wanted to pose the question to you, Dave. What do you think about fans throwing stuff from the crowd? I, I think this is kind of like an obvious take, right? Which is like, don't throw stuff. Don't, yeah. don't throw stuff at your artists. There was a really famous story in the 1990s about the Bare Naked Ladies in their song, If I Had a Million Dollars, which, by the way, is aged very poorly because now a million dollars can't do anything <laughs> for you. Um, but there, there, would, there was this line that says, I wouldn't have to eat craft dinner, but I still would eat craft dinner. And then people in the crowd would throw 
macaroni and cheese, like dry macaroni and cheese at them. Okay. Like the, like the, the actual noodles, right? Yeah, okay. But what started happening is people started making actual craft dinner and throwing their cheesy craft dinner at them, and it was getting, like, stuck in their instruments and, like, on their clothes and in equipment. <laughs> and they said, guys, we appreciated sort of the cute sentiment of throwing dry noodles at us, but just please stop. Like, don't throw projectiles at us. It's, like, not yeah. safe for us. It's not good for our instruments. It's not good for the people you hit. With your macaroni, I would say just generally speaking, the concept of throwing stuff, unless it's a part of the show, is yeah. a really poor idea, right? If you go see the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Exactly, yes. You throw rice at the screen at one point during the wedding scene. Sorry, spoiler alert. I don't know. Is that a spoiler alert? I don't no, know. I don't think so. Okay. Like, But that's like considered an acceptable part of the of the experience. And like little grains of rice aren't necessarily going to impact somebody. So I, I'm generally opposed to it. I think we should generally not be throwing things. Although I will admit throwing stuff is fun. Uh, <laughs> Grace, what do you think? I think that there's variations to it. I think that when fans make something for their favorite artist and they want to get them to them, then it, you know, it kind of checks out. But don't throw it at the artist. You know, get it on stage. Somebody oh, will get the memo. Interesting. Okay. Somebody will get it to them eventually, maybe. But don't throw it at them. Like, don't mm -hmm. target mm -hmm. the performer. Because that's their job. You're interrupting their work. And I know it's not like a traditional job. It's They're on stage. It's a little bit more lacks, I guess, in terms of like boundaries. Mm -hmm. I think people get mm -hmm. that idea, but it's still their job. They're still at work. So you don't really want to interrupt them. And then also it's not safe. It's and it's not, not fun to pelt somebody who's standing in front of you in the back of the head with something either. Because I feel like most people don't have very good aim when I see no, them throwing no. these things Arm on strength, stage. Aim, it's all, it's all in question, right? Yeah. Make sure you're close enough that you can actually get this on stage. Exactly. That was a big thing that happened um, in Montreal in the late 1990s. There was this baseball player, Henry Rodriguez, who people used to call O. Henry. And in 1996, he was chasing uh, the Roger Maris 61 home run mark. And every time we hit a home run, fans would throw O. Henry's on the field. But what happened was eventually we reached the point where just like 20,000 O. Henry bars were cascading down from the upper decks and hitting people <laughs> in the heads. And they were like, all right, we got to stop the yeah. O. Henry thing. So at a certain point, the, the cuteness sort of goes away. So you exactly. You got to be careful with projectiles. Exactly. I think signs are fun for the most part. Although if you're in front of me and you're holding a sign up the entire concert or show, I don't want it. Put the sign down. Put it down occasionally. You know? I think soccer has things right, where they just do chants. Yes. Everybody just bangs drums and chants. That I like. Yes. I was at a TFC game, and I was up, like, kind of close to the top, and then I looked down, and I saw the section with all the drums and the flags and the people jumping up and down, and I was like, I want to go down there. See, that's that enthusiasm. Looks like I yes. like being around the enthusiasm. Yeah. Grace, thank you for this. Of course. That's Grace Scofield with your entertainment report. Let's bring in Nazreen Abdelmajid to find out what's trending. Nazreen, what's popping off on social media today? So other than throwing things at a stage, we're talking about Robin Williams and uh, he's trending all over all over social media because yesterday was his death anniversary. Mm. Uh, it, he died in 2014, August 11th, and people all over social media are reminiscing his uh, career overall. And I know you're a Robin Williams huge. fan. Huge. Yeah. So I think we should get into it. What's your favorite Robin Williams Film. So I, I I divide them across a couple of different kinds of films because he had a couple of very serious roles, a couple of very dark roles, and, a, and of course, a lot of his cute comedy. So I would say of cute comedy, Mrs. Doubtfire will always make me laugh. 
I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if maybe uh, a man dressing up as a woman, that nature of comedy has since aged poorly, but I think that movie is really funny and it was a staple of my childhood. So give me some, give me some Mrs. Doubtfire in the silly comedy category. In the sort of darker comedy category, give me Death to Smoochie. Him, Edward Norton, and Danny DeVito in the early uh-huh. 2000s just absolutely killed it. It was sort of a parody of Barney uh, moving into kids' TV and the way mm-hmm. in which a grizzled old veteran of kids' TV would react to it. It is so funny. It's one of the most underrated comedies of all time, and it started what was a pretty dark turn in Robin Williams' career. We did that. He played a serial killer, spoiler alert, in Insomnia, and he also played a uh, stalker in One Hour Photo. So he made those three movies in a row, and they were all so dark and so good and so interesting because he was a tremendous actor beyond just being a comedian. But I would tell you my favorite Robin Williams movie of all time, the one that if I could put it on today, I don't know if it's on any of my streaming services, but it's Good Morning Vietnam. Because there's a great amount of comedy in that film, but there's also incredible political commentary. So I would say Good Morning Vietnam would be like my number one on the list, but all three of the ones I named were, were ones that I would get enjoyment of watching today. What about you? That's a true Robin Williams fan right there. I have to admit. Um, I just wanted to ask you before I get to me, did you watch all of his films? I don't know if I've like seen as a fan. I don't know if I've seen every single one in the IMDB, but Nazreen, I, I would be fairly confident in saying that I've seen at least 80 to 90% of them. I, I, yeah. I, I would have to, I'd have to look at the whole IMDB list and say, Oh, I've seen this one. I haven't seen this one, but I, but I'm pretty sure I'm batting at, at least an over 80% clip. So for me, I'd say about 50 to 60%. Um, I just remember RV and I grew up watching that movie. Flubber, like these old, old, old movies. And he's always a, uh, an interesting character. I don't want to say weird. <laughs> what you're an making me feel, Nazarene, Flubber was made when I was like 13 years old. You're making me feel was- very old right now. No, 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 no. I was, I grew up watching these interesting movies and he was always one character out of all the movies that I grew up watching. So he, he's an iconic actor. Nonetheless, he can play any character um, in at any point. You said from like dark to comedy and he did it all. So I would, I didn't end up watching Mrs. Doubtfire and I I was actually going to watch it two days ago. So interesting. Watch it. Watch it. It's good. Yeah. It's good. Two days ago, I was looking at Disney Plus and I'm like, should I? I didn't. I didn't watch it, no. Um, but yeah, I, I should. I should. I should get I, on actually, that. You know what, I, Nisreen, I would actually love for you to watch it because I would like to know whether or not that maybe it has aged poorly since it was made in the 90s. Because the joke is not just simply that Robin Williams mm. is in drag. He actually creates a really interesting character. But, I, yeah. but, I, but, I, but I'm always cautious, right? Anything that made me laugh in the 90s, I'm like, ooh, here we are almost 30 years yeah. later. Did that age. So I would actually love for you as a young person, as one of our resident young people, to watch it and tell me whether or not I have to cancel my love of Mrs. Doubtfire. I will let you know. Okay, I will good. Keep you All right. That's your assignment for the weekend. Uh, Nazreen, just before I say goodbye to you, I want to bring in Grace. Grace, do you have any thoughts on a Robin Williams film or a favorite Robin Williams movie? We were just talking to you earlier this week about how Disney sort of dominated your life as a young person. Was there some Robin Williams in that domination? 
Absolutely. I'm going to go for voice talents and say Aladdin. I think the genie oh. is an iconic uh-huh. role. I love that movie. Yes. I love the music. So good. Mrs. Doubtfire, also amazing. Probably my second top favorite Robin Williams Okay, film. well, you're one of our other resident young people. Do I need to be canceled for liking Mrs. Doubtfire? I don't mm-hmm. think so. I don't think so. But okay. also, I haven't watched it in a while, but growing up, loved the movie. Okay, all but right. But Aladdin is my top Robin there Williams movie. There we go. Movie. Love it. Hey, Grace, Nazreen, thank you guys both for this. We appreciate it. Thank you. There is no Ramya Amuthan joining the show today, but she'll be with the Kelly and Company crew at 2 p.m. Eastern time. So make sure you tune in when uh, they're going to be talking to a couple favorites, including Bill Shackleton doing a Buzz with Bill segment on a Friday, 2 p.m. Eastern time. It's Kelly and Company coming your way. Coming up next, Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access will share this year's shortlist for the Stephen Leacock Medal. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's check in with Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access to tell us what's going on in the world of literature and accessible reading material. Karen is the communications manager for CELA. Hey, Karen, great to chat with you once again. Happy Friday. Happy Friday, indeed. Karen, let's start off with literary news. The shortlist for the Stephen Leacock Medal was announced. Who are some of the uh, titles who made the shortlist? So there's three titles that made the shortlist out of 78 entries, and Ooh. they are an embarrassed. Yeah, yeah. So these are the three that are up for the big prize. So the first one is An Embarrassment of Critches by Mark Critch, who folks probably know is a Canadian comedian. The subtitle for this book is Immature Stories from My Grown-Up Life. So that kind of gives you a flavor for what you might get in the book. Um, It revisits some of his major accomplishments, and his first memoir, Son of a Critch, has been adapted for a TV series on CBC. So it's it's a hilarious book, which, of course, is the whole point of the Stephen Leacock medal. And then we've also got uh, Talking to Canadians by Rick Mercer, as well as the Prairie Chicken Dance Tour. Yeah, so Rick Mercer, um, it's a memoir. It sort of charts his rise from an unpromising schoolboy to the height of TV fame. It's his first sort of personal memoir. And the Prairie Chicken Dance is a novel loosely based on a true story about a group of Indigenous dancers who went from Saskatchewan and toured through Europe in the 1970s. There's a madcap cast of characters. And this book was also nominated for the 2022 Saskatchewan Book Award. So great collection. And they're all in our in our catalog. You can and, read them all through Sila. And what kind of prize does the winner get? The winner gets $25,000, which is not jump change. So that's really great for a Canadian award. And it will be announced on September the 17th. So coming up, not too not too far, uh, far away. Also known as one mortgage payment in the greater Toronto area. <laughs> uh, Karen, let's uh, jump over to something that we talked about last time you and I hung out. And that's books that are being adapted into movies. There's a couple more coming down the pipeline that you wanted to highlight. Women Talking, which premieres at TIFF, and The Wonder, which is coming to Netflix. Yeah, so Women Talking is by Marion Caves. It was um, shortlisted for the Governor General Award. I think we talked about it on the show before, uh, and also for the 2019 Trillion Book Award. And it's a book based on a true story about a group of women in a Mennonite community in Bolivia who've been repeatedly violated in the night. They've been led to believe it's demons coming to punish them for their sins, but they find out that it's, in fact, um, they've been drugged and, and attacked by a group of men from their own community. And so they're gathering as a group to talk about how they're going to protect themselves and their daughters. I can't wait 
wait to see what Sarah Pauly does with this content. The cast includes uh, Francis McDormand, so really good oh, name. Oh, wow. Um, wow, 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 wow. Yeah. Yeah, Eli Ham, Claire Foy. So it's uh, it's premiering as t- at TIFF, as you said, so I'm looking forward to this one in particular. And then the other one is The Wonder by Emma Donahue. It's due to be released soon. The date, I couldn't find the exact date, but it says September on Netflix. It stars uh, Florence Pugh as a skeptical English nurse who's summoned to a tiny village in, in Ireland to validate what some people are calling a miracle. A deeply religious 11-year-old girl is said to have survived for months without food, uh, but the the main character is she's skeptical and she's wondering if there's other forces at play here. So uh, Emma Donahue's books have been adapted before her book room was adapted in, in 2017, I think it was a uh, great novel. And I'm again, looking forward to seeing what it looks like on the, the big screen. Karen, let's jump into your featured selections. And as always, I've poorly managed the clock. So we're a little tight here. So I need you to kind of give me one minute on all four of these titles. Well, one minute each for four of these titles. So instead of giving me like the plot summary, just tell me why you picked them. And it's ahead of National Radio Day, which is August 20th, one of my favorite days. So let's start with Up All Night by Carol Miller. Well, I picked these books for you, actually. Oh. So Carol Miller is, uh, yeah, she's a, an American um, rock and roll disc jockey. She actually grew up in a fairly conservative Jewish home. She developed a love of broadcasting when she was in college. And so I love this book because it talks about what uh, female DJs faced in the 1970s and, and beyond in, you know, what is really a very male-dominated um, uh, industry. And mm-hmm. so still love her take still on is. it. She's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's very positive. Um, we get to learn a little bit about her battle with cancer, so it's very personal as well. Uh, but if you're a music lover from the 1970s, that's my era, you're going to love some of the stories in this book. And I think it talks about the power of radio no matter where you are. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a good one for this topic. You've also got uh, The Radio Operator by Eula Lenz. Yeah, so I picked this one. Uh, I tried to pick different, very diverse books. This one's based on a true story, and it's about a German immigrant who becomes embroiled in a Nazi spy ring operating in New York City in the early days of World War II. Uh, and I, I like this book because it gives us a, a sort of a window into history that we might not get. He um, is a he's his passion is radio, and his skills and his technical abilities attract the attention of influential men who offer him a job, but he isn't really clued into what he's actually doing. He becomes a cog in a big wheel and uh, really has to come to terms with his role in history. So a great book, again, talking about the power of radio, talking about having to be aware of the impact of our actions, even beyond just sort of our own small circle. Uh, It weaves some very different timelines together, and I think it's a really profound book. It's very different from the other one, but I think it's a great read about radio. And what about Radio Free Vermont by Bill McKibben? So this one was one I was really excited to talk to you about. Bill McKibben is a, he's a very serious man. He's the founder of uh, 350.org and a number of environmental organizations and a writer of very serious books. This is his first novel, and it is hilarious. It's all about a man who um, his, he starts this sort of underground radio network. His name is Vern Barclay, and he's encouraging sort of uh, guerrilla warfare. He wants Vermont to succeed and become its own uh, its own nation. And so he and a, ca- a very interesting cast of characters do all kinds of crazy things. So they take over a local broadcast system at Starbucks. They hijack a Coors Light truck and replace it with stock from the local brewery. They, um, they dismiss local school children early in honor of Ethan Allen Day. 
So it's very funny, but he argues for some very real solutions for climate change and education and the importance of small town community. I think you'd love it. It's a fast read. It's also uh, it's also quite quite biting, but it will make you think. Karen, sometimes as you're talking to me, I will run to my phone and mark something <laughs> down, and I just marked down Radio Free Vermont. I think I'm going to read it this weekend. I don't have any plans, so I yeah. think we're going to go let for a little know. bit I of a read. Let me know. I think you'll read. love it. <laughs> All right, I let's think you'll love it. Let's get to one more here, and I think this one is fairly famous, but all the light we cannot see. Yeah, so this was published in 2014. It's an older book. It was on the bestseller list for over 200 weeks, and it was nominated for a National Book Award in the U.S. Folks will probably know this title. It's the story of a young blind girl. She lives in Paris near the Museum of Natural History, where her father works. Uh, when she's 12, the, occupy, the Nazis occupy Paris, and they flee to a small town uh, where her reclusive uncle lives. There's a parallel story taking place in a mining town in Germany. Uh, Warner Penfing is a, a, an orphan. He's grown up with his young sister. He finds a radio and he fixes it. And he and his sister become enchanted with the stories that they're hearing from places all around the world. Particularly, he becomes spellbound by a nightly science program broadcast from France, which encourages his talents in math and sciences. They come to the attention of the authorities. He's enrolled in the Hitler Youth Academy, which is not really his only chance to escape a life working in the same sort of situation as his father was when he was killed. So he becomes an expert at building and fixing radios and is um, compelled to use these talents to track down the resistance. This is a beautiful book. It's multi-layered. I read it with a book club. It, it was one of the best conversations we ever had about one of our books. Um, I think folks will really love it if they haven't already read it. It's been optioned by Netflix to become a miniseries, which I think is coming out maybe next year. Um, but really, if you haven't read this one, pick it up. Fantastic book. Well, after I do some laughing with Radio Free Vermont, maybe I'll pick up all the light we cannot see and get a little <laughs> something more intense happening. Hey, Karen, as always, I apologize. Apologize for having to give you the rush, but thank you for uh, rising to the challenge. Thank you for these recommendations. Have yourself a wonderful weekend, and we'll talk to you again in a couple weeks. Great. Thanks. You too. That's Karen McKay, Communications Manager for the Center for Equitable Library Access. That's all the time we have for the show today. It's all the time we have for the show this week. We'll be back again on Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Thea Curdy's going to stop by the show. We'll talk about making hotels more accessible in our inclusion and design segment. I'm Dave Brown. Until then, I'm reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. It's Friday, so let's roll them credits, gang. Host, Dave Brown. News director, Mike Ross. Social media reporter, Nisreen Abdel-Majid. Sports reporter, Jeff Ryman. Audio technical producer and entertainment reporter, Daniel Penamondo. Descriptions by AMI's media accessibility team. TV technical producer, Bruce McLarian. Live production switcher, Sebastian McKenzie. Senior show producer, Andrika Delanarol. Producers, Paul Daniel and Marianne Dion Jones. Audio technical supervisor, Paula Deneen. Operations specialist, Kyle Harper. Manager of AMI Audio, Andy Frank. Director of TV production, Kara Nye. Vice President, Programming and Production, John Melville. President and CEO, David Arrington. Give us your feedback at 1-866-509-4545. Copyright 2022, Accessible Media, Inc. An AMI original production. I'm Marjorie Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hadjar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.